This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hello, my father. Oh, hi, Ernie. How are you, mom? Doing good. It's been a long week, even though it's only been a four-day week, but uh, I'm glad it's over. <laughs> um, because the things uh, stayed there? Um, well, we kids it on Monday, but we had a nice vacation. It's just, um, I don't know if I got a lot done, but it feels like a lot of things have happened. Mm. And, uh, many long conversations with people, both work-related and otherwise. And it's all been mm. productive, but it's sort of emotionally draining. Mm. Okay. Oh, oh. And I've been waking up at 5 a.m. and writing blog posts. So it's been, uh. Uh, that's also been a challenge, mm. uh, including the one that we are using for this uh, chapter of Round mm. the Bend. Uh, um, so uh, we are in the story of Tom Cutter, a uh, airplane engineer turned entrepreneur who is doing this uh, novel well, he, his childhood friend, Constantine Chaplin, is a messianic figure who is apparently preaching to Asiatics that they can follow their religion more faithfully by becoming excellent, meticulous aircraft engineers. Right. Great for Tom in the sense that he gets a lower paid but highly skilled workforce of Asiatics rather than traditional British uh, engineers and pilots. But it's also causing some weird complications as he seems to be becoming sort of a, I guess what we would call a cult figure or at least a religious celebrity with uh, monks and uh, sheiks uh, and ordinary yeah, people crowding a, to come see him. The yeah, interesting thing is it's both with the Muslims and Buddhists and uh, later on even with other religions. So. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, so I think this chapter is basically uh, Constantine's. We finished sort of Constantine's and Tom's backstory, and now we're getting into uh, the overlap between Tom's growing business and Connie's yeah. growing fame. Yeah, um, so he is um, acquiring more aircrafts. Mm -hmm. Actually, the first part is this is his first big airplane, which belonged to a gun runner. Mm -hmm. So he takes that, and then that's uh, bringing more business. So he needs to uh, have more uh, airplanes. And mm -hmm. So he takes uh, Connie with him and. Uh, then he finds out that there's talk in town about him. On Connie. On Connie. So then the um, he's talking to the engineers and stuff, and pretty soon other people are coming in. So other people from, from town. The town are coming to see Connie. Yeah, to hear Connie. Yeah to hear him. So the RAF was kind of concerned. He was also concerned because, you know, 
there in his hangar. So there's just all these random uh, civilians wandering around. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, he talks to Connie and says that uh, you need to uh, put a rope, and those people have to stay outside on the this beyond the rope. Engineers, and he, yeah, non-mechanics. Yeah. And, yeah, and then people do that, and then he he notices that uh, you know his uh, Sikh pilot goes there and kneels down apart from the the Muslims, and then he also goes and one time he goes there and he, uh, or, uh, Tom. Tom goes there, and then one of his uh, one of the Taxi drivers or somebody gives him a flower, and uh, uh, so so yeah. So um, then um, he um, with the so he goes to Rangoon, which is probably another uh, moment um, momental event. Because he goes there and he talks to, um, there was a problem there. In uh, Rangoon, there is a, the, the, the airport is shut down. So ah, right. he has a lot of free, free time in his hand. And um, he um, starts talking to the Burmese, um, I think his, his name uh, is, a, is a chief engineer in Rangoon. And so he says that um, he's heard about Jacqueline and also um, because one of the uh, um, boys who worked with Connie in uh, the desert is in Rangoon. And he ah, right. Yeah. One of them came with him and the other one came here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah one, the one that stayed here is starting to evangelize within quotation marks about yeah uh, Jacqueline and also the same message that he's spreading so and then um, this uh, chief engineer is uh, saying the same thing that here also a lot of people are there so he is asking him about Connie and then he says that um, you know there is uh, the, the the Burmese boy Yu Min comes and says that um, can you come and meet one of the um, uh, his name is Yuset Khan he is, but uh, it means Mr. Rainbow but he's a Englishman he, he is right in the outskirts of Rangoon so he goes and meets him that's how this chapter ends and uh, he talks oh, to him about yeah he has become a Buddhist monk. He was a soldier. Then he went back and settled his affairs and came back into Rangoon and um, became a monk. And he's an old man. He's, he's pretty old. And he wants to know about Jacqueline. Yeah. And then he starts asking him, where was he born? When was he born? That That's where it kind of um, gets interesting because um, he looks. Uh, he he really uh, wants almanac because you know uh, uh, 
Carter says the Hilgrim and all that, but then then he talks about uh, the Buddhist uh, expectations of another teacher coming. The, mm. They call them, uh, and uh, there have been four Buddhas in the history of this world. Gautama was the last, but one day a fifth will come, and he is the hope of the world. And and he says, according to their um, scriptures and stuff, is already born. His birthplace is somewhere in the corner of the continent of Asia, where Tibet and Russia and China meet. Mm-hmm. And then he'll be of a mixed Eastern and Western stock. And then, um, then he says, we don't know when he's going to, uh, uh, where he's going to teach or what he's going to do, but his ministry will last for four years and 23 days. That's all he <laughs> yeah, says. Very specific. Yeah. And that finishes up the uh, chapter here. So, so what are you, you're, uh, you're doing a podcast on this chapter? Oh, no, so we're, you and I are doing a podcast on this chapter. But yeah. as I've been meditating on this, you know, the framing question I've been using is what is this story about? Is it about Tani? So one hypothesis I'm playing with this week is that the uh, book is about religious entrepreneurship. Uh, that was the phrase I coined. In the sense that uh, my my imagination, or at least one reconstruction of, like, why is he writing this book? And what is it really about? Or what is the thing that motivated him to write this book? Right? As an artist, as a novelist, whatever. And so... Um, my, my, uh, I don't think my current hypothesis, I'm starting to question it as I'm going on, but when I wrote the blog post, the hypothesis, well, you know, he, this guy definitely traveled around Asia, knows the community, knows the culture, and it feels like he, you know, even though I think I he was just building, his actual day job was running an aircraft manufacturing or engineering company in Europe, but it seems like he's got an in-depth knowledge of all these places, so he must have either traveled there or worked there or something. And he gives the impression he understands what the market and reality of doing business with airplanes in that part of the world is like. Like what the demands are, well, what the people are like. Yeah, but I don't know whether I would call it religious entrepreneurship because Tom is not. He's the. Well, let me finish my. He's not. Let me finish my narrative. Okay. So my my reconstruction of it is he traveled around all these places and he sort of knew like you know wow it would be great and he you know given there's a scene in chapter two I think where Tom Cutter goes to an aircraft manufacturer and tries to buy an airplane on credit and the manufacturer runs all these numbers showing that this is impossible uh you know like one guy can do it but you can't build a business about it because british wages would just kill it and it sounds the the sense i got was that um or at least my reconstruction is that he was sitting and saying you know wow uh you know uh there's all this asiatic labor uh, and, but they're, they're not really well-trained or they're an uncomfortable fit 
with sort of the modernity requirements of rigor and thoughtfulness. But boy, they seem really uh, methodical and devoted to their prayers. And so one hypothesis is that the seed of the story, she said, well, wouldn't it be great if they could be as religious about aircraft maintenance as they are about their prayers? And so in this framing, that was the seed of the story, is that like, huh, what would it take to do that? He just kind of played with the idea and he said, wow, if you could do that, then you could have this much lower cost structure and you could have like all these inefficiencies he saw where people either use trucks for everything or they uh, had to, you know, um, duplicate functionality, all these different sites. He realizes that, well, if I had a, a, a scalable fleet of charter airplanes rather than just the occasional heroic individual, I could really, uh, in, in business terms, rationalize this market. Right, because there's a lot of latent demand for Ernie, you're going, between, no you're, going you're, you're, you're changing between Tom Carter and uh, Neville Shute here. First, you're sure, ah, first on one point, oh, you're yeah. saying Neville Shute is writing ah. it because of that. Then you're saying Tom Carter is doing this. And okay, yeah. So uh, that's where so it gets mixed up. Okay, sorry if I got confused. Okay, so the, the framing I'm using is in the mind of Neville Shute. He, as a aircraft man who's traveled around Asia, he... Uh, could imagine uh, he, he sees uh, you know from, a, from from this perspective of an entrepreneur, what he sees is that there is uh, latent demand for charter aircraft, right? You still there? Yeah, but who you're talking okay. about? Neville Shute. Neville Shute. Neville Shute, the author. Okay. Okay. Neville Shute in the years before he wrote this. You know the year uh, the year before he wrote this novel. Okay, this, this is what I'm reconstructing. Okay. That's the viewpoint right. I'm adopting here. Is that he looks at this and sees, wow, you know, um, there's this latent demand, like because you know he loved aircraft. So I think that I think that's well established. That's his background and his passion, and that part of him at least I think he put into Tom Cutter. And he says, and he's um, you know, it's kind of like we look, or at least I look at the world of. Uh, technology or information technology is that wow, there's all these inefficiencies with really stupid, uh, kind of brain damaged things because they have no choice, right? They don't have the tools. So it's like, I think, you know, you were at the transition point from traditional surgery to endoscopy, right? Yeah. And I imagine there's a point where once you've learned what endoscopy can do in principle, you say, oh my gosh. There's all these other surgeries I have to do, which are really invasive. Uh, I can't wait for the day when endoscopy is sophisticated enough to handle these problems. Does that make sense? No, you're you yeah. uh, to, be, to, to correct it, uh, this laparoscopy, you're talking about laparoscopy, which is, okay. you know, Thank you. Uh, uh, splitting hairs. Endoscopy is like a colonoscopy and things like that. Laparoscopy gotcha. is a single surgery. Yeah. Ah, okay. Again, you know, we are Thank recording you. this. That's why. I clarified it. Okay, yeah, go no, ahead. No, it's good. Yeah, it's good for me to be fine. So, yeah. But did you ever feel that, like, wow, this is the future, the way we're doing it now is kind of backwards? Or wouldn't it be great if we'll be able to use this for more problems? See, the, the um, surgical field is evolving, right? I mean, when I came, we did not have the, even the endoscopy. Uh, we were mm -hmm. the rigid scopes, the flexible endoscopes came. So um, I didn't sit around and 
analyze it. I just went with the flow. First, uh, what's the next thing that happens? What's the next thing happens? Uh, so I went for training and started doing that because we had a good uh, fundamental um, foundation. So um, I didn't say, okay, I should um, do this in order to uh, make more money or whatever. No, I, I thought this is an interesting development. I should learn it so that I can use it in my practice. And once I started doing that, we realized that the world is changing. Every, uh, every field is going the laparoscopic way. And so I not only did the general uh, laparoscopy, but I did gynecological laparoscopy too, ovarian cysts and uh, hysterectomies and things like that. So basically, it's like, um, you know, when computers came or whatever, people started you know, with a different uh, languages and then they learned them and they started using them, that type of thing. It was almost, I hate to use the word evolution, but there's a progression. The fusion of innovation is one term, where right, an idea yeah. sort of percolates among different markets or different fields. Yeah. Yeah. yeah by the time you know, Sorry, they yeah. came along, you know, I mean, they're using it for all kinds of stuff, and mm -hmm. and he's also continuously uh, learning because when he was in training, there was no robotic surgery. Right. And then basically uh, he he kind of learned it, and he then he started teaching it and using it in different fields. So I think that's the way uh, the medical field goes. But uh, this this guy, you are saying that uh, he found chartering charter aircraft as a new uh, thing that is coming along and should get in on the ground floor type of thing. Maybe well, well, yeah, here's the interesting thing, actually, have, hearing your story is useful. I think you are what we would call an early adopter, right? You were one of the first doctors in our county to use some of these technologies, right? Right, right. So, laparoscopic things like that. Right, and so, so you saw that, like, hey, I'm doing this thing here. This is a better way to do it. I want to be on the cutting edge and, and use this technology to solve these problems. So what's interesting right. is that you are uh, the, kind of the, the, the mirror image of the entrepreneur. Like, so the entrepreneur is someone who says, oh, I see that this technology can solve this problem. I need to find someone who's willing to pay for that and willing right. to use it. And so the person looks at the, so the thing that's interesting to me is that Neville Shute, uh, uh, the, it seems like he saw, assuming this is based on reality and experience and not just something he just made up for the fun of it, he looked at the way aircraft were being used or underused in the Middle East yeah. uh, because they're, they're all, all these subscale um, oil companies. And, and he yeah. heard him like, wow. Uh, so however he got there, he realized that um, in theory, if you could have a low enough cost labor force, you could build a charter business that would rationalize this market where they could use right. aircraft for stuff they're currently using trucks or redundant capacity for. So that's an interesting okay. lens to use to look at mm. uh, the motivation the devil shoot had. So from that perspective, uh, the, the hypothesis I was playing with, which I really like, uh, but now I'm starting to question, is that maybe that was uh, the way he was thinking when he wrote this book. It's like, it's really about the entrepreneurship and the thing that he really loved or was really into because he certainly spends a lot of time on it, is how this um, 
technique of religiously motivated airplane mechanics would allow him to build out this, uh, even just in his mind, right? Just as a mind game. Because uh, I do this sort of thing for fun too. It's like, wow, if I had this technology, I could totally change this market. And I don't necessarily plan to do anything with it uh, unless you know a miracle happens, which opens the door for it. But it's 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 a mindset of looking at it, uh, uh, the world. And uh, it, he seems to have that kind of entrepreneurial mindset. Of, There's a market here that if I had a slightly different technology, I could totally uh, change the way people use this technology do business. And that's the entrepreneurial angle to it. So that's why, are you done? Are you you done? Yes, I'm done. Yeah. Okay, let let me me critique it. Yeah, let me critique it. You are confusing two things here, entrepreneurial stuff and religious stuff. The entrepreneurial stuff, I totally agree with you. But now you're saying, because they were religious, uh, he, he brings in religion there, so that the um, entre- uh, the enterprise will be successful. When Tom Cutter is doing this, he has no clue about the religious part of it. It came as a surprise to him. And it ends up being a better operation. Um, whereas I look at it in a different way that, yeah, you're right, entrepreneurs, he sees, just like Neville Shute may have seen it, Tom Cutter sees an opportunity and tries to undercut other people, be the uh, model of Asiatic engineers. And these people came in, actually he had the first pilot uh, before Shacklin came. The second part of it, I look at it in a different way. I look at it as um, Neville Shute bringing in uh, what we call ministry in daily life. And I think uh, Martin Luther touched on it because he always talked about the um, ministry in daily life. Uh, uh, what you are, you need to be the best. What God has given you, you should serve God using what you're going to do. If you are a baker, you use that. If you are a soldier, you use that. And if you are a pastor, you use that. That's called the ministry in daily life. So uh, that's what here, because he, he preaches that you should be a good engineer because God wants you to be a good engineer. You serve God by being a good engineer, whether it is Allah or it is Buddha or it is Jesus. Uh, principle is the same. So that's how I look at it. Okay, so let me kind of place these ideas on a spectrum. Okay. Okay. So let's call this the the one um, view. Let's call it the cynical view. Okay. The cynical view is that um, Neville Shute doesn't really care that much about religion. He just uses it either. I'm not saying this is true. Sorry. Hmm. I I am defining a view. I am not saying I hold this view. I'm not saying it's true. I'm saying it's a view that somebody can Hmm. have. So don't, unless you're disagreeing that someone can have this view, don't disagree with me. Okay. Right? Okay. okay. I'm just laying out a view, and I'm just using the label okay. cynical, right? And, it's, it, it, there, and there's a couple of layers of cynicism to this. One is that Neville Shute doesn't care about religion, and even Tom Cutter doesn't really care about religion. It's just a useful tool to, uh, or a plot device 
to tell this story about uh, like, you know, kind of the way you read it when you were a child, right? You read it as kind of an adventure story about this guy building this business uh, in these exotic locales. Um, uh, not and, completely, know, not completely, because um, okay. the religious side also was part of it. Coming from a very conservative, coming from a very conservative, was a Protestant town. It was very right. disturbing to me. Okay. Anyway, that's the, the point. Oh, the, the, you the, go with your theory. Uh, yeah. Okay. The the the, the uh, well, yeah, and, and the uh, it's the sermon of Tom Cutter too, but he kind of makes his peace with it for various reasons. Um, but so anyway, the cynical viewpoint is that the story is really about the entrepreneurship or the motivation for writing the story or the point of the story or the theme of the story is really about the business entrepreneurship side, and uh, that. Uh, Neville Shute is just kind of using a relatively shallow uh, religious uh, plot device to kind of tell the story that he that, that he, that he cares about, that he loves religion, that he loves aircraft and business and things like that. Okay, that's the cynical or maybe materialist point of view. Uh, if okay. you want to use a more neutral term, right? The other okay. the other end of the spectrum is the, uh, let's call it an enlightened or spiritual point of view, is that maybe the heart of the story is really something profound about uh, ministry and daily life or reconciling sort of traditional religious cultures to technology and modernity. And he actually does have a deep transcendent spiritual insight that's the heart of the story and it's wrapped up in all this cloak of you know business and adventure and exotic locales and things like that and that okay. maybe there's really some deep spiritual transcendent understanding that is actually that neville shoots the author actually had um and that he's telling this story to um share or invite people into this deeper uh, a trans-religious spiritual understanding. Okay. Um, and so, the, you know, I think those are two interesting perspectives, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? One so is the third part of it. There's the a third. There's a, okay. There's a third part. There's the third part, okay. uh-huh. which, uh, which, uh, um, from my point of view, because um, okay. what do you do with one of your family members who becomes very religious? <laughs> um, when you're faced with, uh, you know, we had the, with the, the Suresh first went off with Operation Mobilization, my cousin Suresh, and we call him, you know, Sadhu Suresh, which is like his, Sadhu is a saint, um, yeah. because he always was uh, reading the Bible and telling us about uh, religious um, uh, things. Uh, we didn't know what to make of it. Yeah. When you called him Sadhu, it was half respectful, half mocking. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of. Uh, because you know, what is he doing? Because you're supposed to either become a doctor or an engineer or a teacher. Uh, what are you going to do with this business? Then comes Vasant, uh, my brother Vasant, and he's got a wonderful job, which is very difficult to get. And he's got prestige there. In the, air, in the airline a, industry, right? The airline industry, it was, you know, a you know, ground crew, but 
then uh, he uh, gets married, has a beautiful wife and a son, and things are going well. He is playing field hockey and ready to represent the state and maybe go on to the country. And all of a sudden, he says, you know, uh, I resigned my job. I'm going to become a full-time evangelist. So what do you do with that? Somebody who is that religious, that's how, you know, that's from my perspective. What do you do with a person like that? Do you uh, encourage him? Do you discourage him? Do you support him? Uh, do you try to understand him? Uh, all those things come there. So. How does that apply to this story? In a month? You, I appreciate you sharing this personal perspective from your own life and family. I'm curious, mm. how does that apply to this story? Mm. How does it apply to the story? Yeah. Uh, you're cutting out, Ma. Yeah, I was just asking, folks, can you hear me? Testing one, two, three? Yeah, no. Yeah, go ahead. How does that perspective apply to this story? Well, um, he. Tom Carter has a friend who's an engineer. But all of a sudden, he's finding out he's very religious. And he's preaching, and uh, he's spending time with the religious leaders. And uh, so how do you deal with him? Do you encourage him? And do you think he's God, he's a messiah? Uh, and do you follow him, or do you oppose him? All that goes around in Tom Carter's mind. and. In the one instance that he says, you know, as long as you put a rope and keep it outside of the business, it's okay. That's how he solved mm. that dilemma. Uh, dilemma. And then later on, and then later on, other people will find out a little bit more as more and more people start um, coming to uh, listen to him and things like that. Because uh, um, then as his fame spreads, what do you do with that? You know, do you continue to employ him as an engineer? Because he keeps, the, the story changes in the next few chapters. But um, do you follow him? Do you support him? You, you build him a temple and put him there? Or have him go and preach? Um, that's what uh, I had to do with my brother. So I brought him here and put him to divinity school, uh, to religious school, supported him. Uh, and then uh, at that time, there was no other support, right? There was no organization. So as a family, I supported him. So same thing was happening with Tom Cutter here. What does he do with him? Is just keep him as an engineer or make, send him out as a messiah? Uh, so as we go along, we can develop that as we go along. The next few chapters. Yeah, so, so that's the way I would phrase that, given my, uh, the terminology I was using, is that, so there's the sort of the, um, and, and you know, this is not just a question of like novel, this is also a question of, you know, culture and politics and religion, right? Is that there are certainly people. Yeah, even race comes in there. View, yeah, even race, race, race comes yes, in there. Yeah. Absolutely, right? Mm -hmm. And there's certainly people who view religion as, uh, what is it, Marxist term, the opiate of the masses, right? It's a useful yeah, yeah, correct, tool yeah. to get people to do the things that, the, the real work of, of, of society is about money and power. You're cutting and out again, Ernie. Mm. Sorry, that's interesting. Uh, mm. 
for me, when I get home near the Wi-Fi, it messes with my oh, audio connection. I'm oh, not sure why. You're or trying, yeah, you're trying to switch from one to the other. So let me try and sit down somewhere, and that way the dogs <laughs> won't bark. And okay, uh, uh, see if I can get the connection. Testing one two three. Testing one two three. Okay, how are we? Are I, we good? I can hear you really well. Really well. Yeah. Okay, good. And the dogs are happy. So otherwise, they spend mm -hmm. all their time barking <laughs> from the wrong okay. place. All right. So there's uh, you know in in the way that religion relates to society. You know, there's those, uh, you know, the, the uh, I think this is some of the neoconservative ideology as well, is that religion is a useful tool for helping society, uh, you know, be stable. And that's okay. and it's a very cynical view of religion. It's just as a tool. The other view okay. is that, well, religion is actually, you know, the pure devotion of man to God is really what the point is, and that all this other... Menial, uh, menial work is just there to support the church, like a monastery. They make beer and they, uh, uh, you know, house guests and they do booking, you know, create books and things like that. But that's kind of a personal discipline they do uh, just to support their life and contemplation of God, which is what pure religion is, is this, you know, mm. ecstatic mystical union with God. And the idea okay. of monks in general, people who've, who've given up the comforts and demands of ordinary life so they can devote their full attention to God. Right? That's kind of yeah, the, because you talked about, about that, right? Because uh, the, that uh, Englishman monk talks about that, mm -hmm. how he, they just walk around with a bowl and they don't even ask for food. People drop food into them and they basically denounce everything, focusing only on God. Yeah. Right. That's, yeah. that's something that's called a mendicant order. As opposed yeah. to the sort of the industrial orders, uh, like yeah, Jesuit Jesuit Benedict. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, the Jesuits, I think, were kind of think which I think they were probably yeah they, they were more academics. Um, yeah, education, education was there. But yeah, but yeah, the the where as well like the Saint Francis, where they're more like the Buddhist monks who are beggars. And the reason was is that Saint Francis was complained that the monks had. The monasteries had turned into big business, and people were going there just for the business side, and God right. was getting ground out by the industry. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's always been this tension, I think. And so that's the, yeah. a really, and that's an even more interesting lens to look at this story. Is like, wow, what if this is really not about, you know, so like the cynical view uh, or the ethereal view, you know, one is mm -hmm. that religion is just a tool of entrepreneurship, the other is that entrepreneurship is just a, a, a cover for the spirituality. But what if the mm. real heart of the story is actually mm. about this tension? Is a yeah. tension between commerce and spirituality, mm. between okay. traditional religion and Western technology. Mm. And okay. he's playing with a um, somewhat contrived way of reconciling the two, but it's mm. also a very profound idea if you think about it is that you know as we know the asian countries really struggled for many decades under western imperialism and in particular right. this tension between the religious impulse and the demands of and the what's called the religious impulse and the scientific impulse Right, no, and yeah. that the way yeah, yeah. that West and 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 and, and, and yeah, anyway, you think about what happened in the 70s with the resurgence of fundamentalism, 
you know, starting right. with the, the, the revolt in Iran and then all the trauma we're having in the Middle East today. It's like, well, you know, it feels like the way we brought all the benefits of Western conveniences actually did impoverish the souls of these people, which has led to a fundamentalist reaction. Um, and, you know, it, it, it seems from this perspective, it's like, wow, to imagine this uh, hybrid character who created yeah. uh, a transcendent um, unity between different religions, between East and West, between technology and spirituality, that seems not just like a cheesy little plot point, but a deeply okay. profound question that, wow, if we had actually grappled with that question, if our philosophers and entrepreneurs and politicians had grappled with these problems in the 60s when this book was written, dear God, maybe we would have avoided <laughs> being blindsided by all these uh, fundamentalisms and jihads and acts of terror uh, that have yeah. shaped you know, the last few decades of our lives. Yeah. So I think, you know, and at this point in the book, it's a good idea to have all these three theories and let's see what happens. Because, you know, I keep telling you that we are, this is a very difficult, in one way it's a very difficult thing to do because we are doing it chapter by chapter rather than the whole book. So I think you should ask again, every chapter I think you're going to ask, why did you write it? So maybe um, it's good to have these three points of view and then uh, go from there. Yeah. No, I was I mean, to me, that's the, you know, the whole title of this podcast today, We Choose Faces, and this mm. idea of literature. And it's fascinating, right? Because Neville Shoot was not considered like one of the great, you know, like this is, as far as I could tell, he was writing what I would, we would now label genre fiction, right? These were sort of adventure stories for the masses. These weren't like, deep philosophical novels like James Joyce or, or things like that. Yeah, because, you know, the, I'm reading, <laughs> I'm reading the other two books <laughs> by him. Uh, yeah. I finished two of them, and then I'm going to the third one, and each one is a little different. And uh, one of them is just all about the um, blitz of London. What happens hey. to one family? Um, just uh, the, uh, Germany is bombing London. And mm -hmm. Then what happens to one family? And first they have to decide whether to stay in London or not. And then they decide to go to their boat and try to escape. And just what happens, that's all the story is about. There is no religious aspect of that, no airplane. Uh, I mean, there are some airplanes because, you know, there's the blitz is uh, bombs falling. Yeah, right. The RAF people uh, going and. Uh, but it's, it's really about this family. Yeah. Yeah, it's about a family. And the third one, uh, the other book that I'm reading was about a, a, a pilot, RAF pilot. That's a lot of mm -hmm. airplanes there. But uh, mm -hmm. even there, uh, this religious aspect doesn't come there. It is an adventure story. Right. So the right. So it's interesting. The um, you know, uh, a like of the of, of this hybrid perspective of this tension between these different priorities. There's two ways of looking at that. One is that he's very consciously trying to wrestle with these deep themes. The mm -hmm. other is that he's just sort of internalized these themes by living in that world, and he's just mm -hmm. telling the story kind of through his eyes as he sort of 
plays within his own head. He isn't necessarily foreshadowing the religious riots of the 70s and uh, the terrorism of the 90s, but because he is a good writer uh, and a good student of human nature, he has picked okay. up all these things and he's come up with a way to kind of put them together into a story. And he may not okay. have any personally, any deep, profound spiritual insight that he has acquired, but just by the necessity of writing this story, he comes to uh, play with these ideas in a way that you and I can look back with 50 years of history and find, wow, these threads really seem to tie into a lot of these profound things that have happened in the world since then. And that's, you know, yeah, that's again, that's again as I said, you know, it's a good theory to have and let's see what happens. Yeah. Which way right, it goes. And then at like, the end of the like, book, like, we can like, probably come to some conclusions. Right. Because, like, for example, I mentioned even in my blog post as I was writing it, I started out with this kind of mechanistic, you know, entrepreneurial centered theory. But it's like, okay, but if you're doing that, then the fact that he becomes this trans religious figure with those prophecies about it seems overkill, right? And I think that, yeah, that, yeah. that is a common problem with the sort of cynical view of religion. Uh, is that, well, if religion is intended as a tool to just opiate the masses, then how do you explain a Martin Luther King, right, who, who sort of weaponizes religion as a tool of revolution? And it's like, okay, there's more to this story than just that simplistic reading of it. Uh, but how much more, and, you know, maybe even for the author himself, uh, I've certainly had the experience when I've been writing things that sometimes your characters do things that surprise you. Yeah, and you know, you know, he started out. He started out writing one story, and ended up turned into a different one uh, as he got into it and started fleshing out what made sense in the world of the characters. So, right. uh, yeah, and we may never know what was actually in his head, but it's interesting to play with what could have been in his head and how does that fit the data of how the story develops. Okay. Sounds All right. Good okay, Mavan, I, uh, I need to call you back. Uh, Ernie, can I call you after we? I have one question for you, so. Sure. Um, when we finish here, then we'll we'll do that. Okay. All right. Love you, Dad. Talk to you soon. Okay. Well, uh, love you. Well, thanks for a good session. And uh, I I do have I I, I know I read your uh, thing where the guy goes into um, uh, church. The church. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to hold off on that because uh, I think what do you call it when you talk about uh, something that you know end of the story or something. Spoiler. Uh, spoiler, spoiler alert or something. Spoiler alert. Spoiler okay. alert. Um, so he does go into a church. So, <laughs> so, so I think before we do that chapter, I'll tell you what I thought about your your idea of how he went into the church. Okay. But that will be for another time. And uh, yeah, because I've totally forgotten then, that part um, myself. So. Yeah, and then uh, the. Um, mm, yeah, okay, then uh, we'll stop here now and uh, say goodbye to this podcast, and then uh, I'll call you right back, okay? Okay, thank okay, you. Ma, lo Bye. Love you. Mm, bye bye.